Good evening, Mercy View. I'm Jama Raubach. I'm a partner at Mercy View. If you will open your Bibles or your electronic devices to Romans 9, we're going to read Romans 9, 1 through 13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their right race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago, Holly and I were taking a trip that we had planned to visit her sister and her sister's family in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, I don't know if you remember, this was actually back in the spring of 2011, and in the spring of 2011, the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers were flooded. In fact, it was among the largest and most damaging uh, floods that have ever been recorded as long as they've been keeping records. And one of the roads that takes you uh, from where we were coming to Omaha is just north of Kansas City, Interstate 29. And so we got on Interstate 29 north of Kansas City. It was starting to get dark, and um, we realized this is a major four-lane like interstate, like interstates are. And um, the dark, it was darkness was starting to happen, and um, we were just like kind of getting lulled into just that nighttime driving thing. And we were like, "Man, we need to. I need to use the restroom." And so we, the last Missouri exit we saw was like exit 100, I think. And we got off of that and went into this McDonald's. And it was like 7 p.m. And I just remember thinking, there's nobody at this McDonald's. This is really weird. Uh, and then, of course, we got out to go use the restroom in this McDonald's. No one was in the McDonald's. It was like a ghost town. But um, I just kind of pushed through that. I didn't really think much about it. And we got back in our car and began to drive further up on Interstate 29. After about five miles or so on, on Interstate 29, I began to notice something off in the distance. And sure enough, right in the middle 
of a major American interstate were signs that said, road closed. And as we began to get closer and closer to these signs, the headlights that were shining very brightly at this point, I could see around the signs to the side of the signs and I saw water everywhere. Don't ask me how I did not notice the detour signs. Uh, I don't know if that's just a male thing. I don't know if I was just like pushing through, but we totally missed the signs that told us where we shouldn't go. And here's what I experienced in that moment when I began to see that those floodwaters. I was shocked and surprised. In fact, it was so shocking and unexpected that it literally reoriented us. We had to turn around and begin to move another way, but it also kind of reoriented me internally. I began to think, how could I have missed the signs? What's wrong with me? Like, how did we miss this this signal that we should have had that we should have went a different direction? This thing that we came upon was unexpected. It was surprising. It, It ended up changing our focus. It literally changed our direction. It reoriented us. Have you ever come across something in your life that has reoriented you? Maybe it's not something like missing a detour sign, but maybe something even more serious. Suffering or difficulty or, or coming up against death of some kind, a loved one around you. If you're like me, those moments in life rattle me. They begin to reorient me. They put me in a very tender place that many times the Lord is very gracious in speaking and moving and changing me. Have you ever been reoriented like that? Tonight we are jumping back into our series in the book of Romans that we began back in the fall of 2021 called Reign of Grace. And beginning tonight, And for the next couple of months, we are looking at what is considered the end of the first half of the book of Romans. Takes us really through the end of chapter 11. And as we do that tonight, I want to invite you to see two things. First, the grace of God should continually amaze you. The grace of God should continually amaze you. And second... The grace of God should continually reorient you. So, if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, look with me if you would. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. That's where we'll be beginning tonight. Now, as you look there, I want to uh, just say a few things. If you're unfamiliar with the book of, or the chapter of Romans 9 in the book of Romans, um, you are going to likely feel, and you maybe even felt it as you heard Jema read uh, the passage tonight, some things that are perplexing, some things that are even maybe we could say unsettling. Um, As we get into Romans 9 today, we are starting to touch on what the Bible calls the higher ways of God. You see that language in places like Isaiah 55 9. Romans 9 is going to use words like you just heard read, like election. Actually, if you remember Romans 8, uh, Paul used the word predestined 
to describe the purposes of God. And in our passage tonight, Paul uses the word election to describe the purposes of God. These are deeply theological words. And they have significant meaning for you as a Christian. But here's what can happen, I think, if is we come to these ideas, if we're not careful. There are many things that inform our understanding of who God is. What we're doing right now is one of those things. I have the immense privilege to uh, bring the Word of God to you and share with you what I believe God wants our church to hear in this moment in time in our church's history. So through preaching and receiving that, you and I, are, are, our understanding can be informed, right? In discipleship relationships, in our gospel communities, even as we go and serve people in our, our, our circles of influence, and spheres of influence, as we go on mission together, our understanding of God is informed by that. But as we tackle some difficult things tonight, and we will in the weeks to come, particularly here in, in, in Romans 9, we have to come back to this truth. We must allow the Bible to shape our thinking. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's kind of messy, we must ask ourselves, do I submit what I think about God to the Bible's authority, or do I try to make the Bible submit to my views? And as we jump into Romans 9 tonight and in the weeks to come, you will likely find that you are going to be uncomfortable at some moments. But it's important to embrace the fact that there are just things about God and His higher ways which are beyond our ability to listen to this word, fully understand. I think God has given us minds to think and intellect to consider things and, and, and he does give us the ability to understand quite a bit about him. But we're touching on some things tonight that friends, I, I, just to be honest with you, like for me, um, they're mysterious things. I don't fully understand all that I'm getting ready to say to you. But I'm going to tell you what I believe the scriptures through the inspiration of, of the Spirit is saying to us about God. So I, I don't want you to be surprised by that tonight and the weeks to come. In fact, what I think would be really helpful for all of us is that we would use that sort of discomfort as a servant to humble us and to inspire us to pursue God in a fresh way, in a new way. Remember, friends, like sanctification, that's another big theological word, just means the journey that you and I are on in our Christian walk together. Um, when we come into a place like this and we look at the Word of God together, this sermon tonight and this sermon series that we're in and, and every context that you're in to be discipled, it is a part of your sanctification. Here, here's what I mean. The subjects in this chapter that we're looking at tonight are worthy of a lifetime, a lifetime of humble, God-centered, Scripture-fed pursuit. So don't be too frustrated with yourself if you're like, man, I, 
this blowing my mind tonight, Brad. Like, I, you know, like you're, you're walking away tonight thinking, I'm more confused than I was when I came in. Let's be patient with ourselves. Let's be patient with others that we're in community with because we all come to these texts with different backgrounds, different histories, different contexts. But let's do this together, though that may be what's different. Let's resolve together to keep seeking the Lord as we struggle to understand difficult things of God. God has us studying this text at this moment in your life and in this moment in our church's history for a reason. So let's step into this moment we find ourselves in and these chapters with a hum, a humility, but with a hopeful expectancy that this, this is something that God wants to use in our lives to bring about change and transformation. So as we enter Romans 9 tonight, I just want to give you a little bit of context. We've not been in Romans for a bit, but as we enter Romans 9 tonight, uh, Paul is doing something that he's done before in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul is a very astute dude. Like he, he knows before uh, you might know the question that you might have with something that he just said. And so many times in the book of Romans, he's anticipating a question that is coming because of what he has just said. It's been a while since we've been in Romans 8, but in Romans 8, we see all of these beautiful examples of of who God is and how God relates to us and how we find ourselves in this spiritual family being adopted into that. And so he's anticipating that after saying all of that, um, that someone might raise their hand and say, okay, Paul, like that is great. Like we can't be separated from the love of God. God is for us. We've been adopted into a spiritual family. But what about the chosen people of God? Like the Israelites, the Jewish people, they right now don't believe in the Messiah. They have rejected Jesus. What's up with that, Paul? Now here's, here's another way to say it. The question might be, Paul, if, if God made promises to Israel and those promises never happened and, or aren't happening now, how can God be trusted how can God be trusted to keep any of his promises? If God failed with them, how do we know he won't fail with us too? And this is a very theological question. But friends, Paul, for Paul, it's a very personal question too. Because it's not only personal because of his own heritage, but it's personal as he is speaking to the Roman church and by proxy he's speaking to us our eternity hangs on whether or not God is faithful. So Paul anticipates this question and he starts to answer that question in the, 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 the book of Romans, in, in Romans 9, the chapter of Romans 9. And I want you to look with me if you would, beginning there in verse 1. Here is what Paul begins by saying. He wants to say, hey, look, I'm getting ready to tell you things that are true. He says it in a couple different ways. I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. And then he appeals to Christ and the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit actually is confirmed in his spirit that, that, that the things that he's going to say are, are true. And then notice that Paul expresses deep pain about the spiritual reality of the Jewish people. And I love this about Paul. When you think of a theologian, and Paul is the consummate theologian, 
you think of probably maybe very stoic, very intellectual, maybe even cold people. <laughs> Paul is nothing like that. Now, Paul is one of the smartest people that, that has ever lived. His intellect was off the charts. But we begin to see here tonight, and we see it all over the New Testament, that Paul is appropriately emotional and, and loving as a theologian. Maybe, maybe we could say it this way. Paul's always um, moving in this direction. How can I take the theology that I have and move it from my head to my heart? And when Paul does that, he, he recognizes that theology affects people, affects real people. And he wants to see, in this passage, he wants to see all people, as many people as possible, to come to a saving knowledge and experience of God in their lives. Paul goes so far as to say, actually, in this uh, beginning part of, of chapter 9, that he would give up his salvation in order for the non-believing Jewish people to be saved. Now, don't miss what Paul is doing here. He is, this is not an academic or philosophical question for him. He is saying, God, if you will take away my salvation, which, by the way, what is the implication of that? If you will send me to hell so that these folks here, these precious people, can know you, do it. Now, look with me, if you would, at verse 3. Paul begins to explain that the question that people might have, what looks like maybe on the surface as a failure of God's, really has to do with um, what is happening with ethnic Israel. Now hang with me here. Paul is, is burdened by the nation of Israel rejecting Christ. That's why he uses terms like brothers and my kinsmen and Israelites. The chosen people of God are now cut off from, from Christ. And it's tragic because of all the spiritual blessings that God afforded to them. And you see some of those in, in verse 4. Things like adoption and the covenants that he made with his people and the promises. The grief is so deep in Paul because God had chosen Israel he had blessed them. He had promised them a glorious spiritual future. But they have rejected this blessing by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Now in verse 5, Paul looks back at the history of Israel by noting that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were the ones who were first to receive Israel's promise. And then he ends that list with the sort of culmination of the tragedy. Again, it's the rejection of the Messiah. See, the Jewish people, despite all the blessings of God and despite the Messiah coming for them, have turned away. And really the tragedy, even today, is that because they are cut off from God, they are under God's judgment. They are under His wrath. What happened to the Jewish people? How did we get here? How did they get here? This really leads me to the first point that I want you to see this evening, and it's this. The grace of God should continually amaze us. Or maybe said another way, we should never presume 
upon the grace of God. Here's what this means. It, it would be easy for us to look at the Jewish people here and think, how in the world could the chosen people of God reject the blessings of God? How in the world could they reject the grace of God? How could they question the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God? Those things are true. Like today, for the nation of Israel, those things are true. But I think Paul's point for us tonight is that we're to hold a mirror up to ourselves and ask, how do we presume upon the grace of God in our lives? How do we take for granted? How do we neglect? How do we at times even abandon who God is and what he offers us in his mercy toward us? And the way that I think, the primary way that you and I do that, it's the same way that the Jewish people are doing it here in Romans 9. You and I take the grace and the mercy of God for granted when we think it is owed to us. Now for the Jewish people, their, their belief that God owed them this is because of their heritage. That's what they're placing their faith in. God's saying, that is not what saves you. I heard a story once about this idea from the great theologian, author, teacher, uh, R.C. Sproul. He was once a teacher uh, for an introduction to Old Testament class in a seminary he was teaching in. And on the first day of, of class, he gave the students a syllabus. And on the syllabus, it said this, you have to write three short term papers in a semester. Uh, they're going to be five pages each. The first one is due on September 30th when you come to class. The second is due on October 30th when you come to class. And the third is due on November 30th when you come to class. If you come to class without your paper that on the due date, you get an F. And he asked the class after reading the syllabus with them, do you all understand that? 250 students, big class. And they all said in unison, Yes. Now, on the due date for the first paper, 225 of the 250 students came in with their term papers. The other 25 students came in trembling. But somehow they mustered up the courage to ask Dr. Sproul for more time, and he graciously gave them three more days. They were astounded by his kindness. Then those uh, the second paper came up, the due date for the second paper. This time, only 200 students came with their term papers. 50 did not. But those 50 did not, uh, did not uh, come in trembling this time. They actually came in pretty cool and pretty casual um, and asked Dr. Sproul to give them more time. And Sproul very graciously said, I'll give you three more days, but that's, that's it. Then if you come in late the next time with your, uh, with your term paper on this last one, you will get an F. You know the, where this is going. Then came the third paper due date. This time, only 100 of them came in with their term papers. 150 students did not. And those 150 students walked in that day without a care in the world. So Sproul opened up his little black grade book. He began to go through all 250 names. And if one, if he had the paper of someone that had turned in, in their term paper, 
He said, I'll grade it later, but you're good. But when he came across someone who had not turned in their term paper, out loud in the class, he said, that will be an F. You can imagine 150 times of that, it got really monotonous and old to those students who had not brought their term papers. And sure enough, in the middle of all of this, a student shouted, this isn't fair. Sproul asked the student, weren't you late with your paper last month as well? Yeah. Didn't I give you additional time last month and you you turned it in? Yeah, I did. He said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If it's justice that you want, justice you will get. So Sproul, out loud, changed his grade in October to an F as well. And when Sproul did that, there was a gasp in the room. And here Sproul, Sproul asked this question, who else wants justice? No one said a word. See, the students not only confused grace and justice, they had grown accustomed to taking the grace of the teacher for granted. The first time they were late with their papers, they were amazed by the kindness of Dr. Sproul. The second time, they were no longer surprised by it. They actually assumed it. And by the third time, they demanded it. They had come to believe that that kindness, that grace, that mercy from Dr. Sproul was an inalienable right that they deserved. Friend, when you and I think we are owed God's grace, we are treating God's grace Way too casually. God's grace, his mercy, comes to us at a great price. God gave his son willingly for our redemption. And Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross to pay the price for us. If all of that is true, and it is, we should never, ever be lulled into thinking that we are somehow owed the goodness of God. It is a gift of free grace that God gives to whomever would believe. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has nothing to do with your work. It's free grace. It's a gift. It should never stop astonishing us. It should never stop uh, astounding us. It should leave us awestruck. So maybe the question for us tonight is, why doesn't it? The grace of God should continually amaze us. Now, look with me, if you would, beginning there in verse 6. Paul uh, continues to answer this question that he anticipates uh, might come about the Jewish people. And here's what he says. I want to read this because this is really important for us tonight. There in verse 6, look there. Here's what it says again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Here's what Paul is saying. Yes, the promises made to Israel about her spiritual restoration have not happened yet. They have not come true yet. But to link that reality with a failure somehow on the part of God and his word is to go too far. Because then you are only looking at this through a national lens, the nation of Israel. Here's 
this is a little thick, but just hang with me. What Paul is saying here is not all who have descended from ethnic Israel belong to Israel. God has preserved a remnant within Israel. Paul is saying that being an Israelite is not just a matter of ethnicity, it is a matter of belief. And to make his point, he makes four statements in verses 7 through 8 to try to turn the focus away from the national rejection of the Messiah to individual or the remnant of Israelites who have believed. But don't miss this. Israel's trust, the Jewish people's trust in her chosen status, her ethnicity, is the central cause of her unfaithfulness. Israel as a nation has failed to realize that God was looking for something more than a Jewish lineage. So look with me, if you would, beginning at verse 9. By the way, all of that I just said there, there are, there are um, people that I've listened to in just preparation for Romans 9 who've spent months on just that passage I just read to you. So if we need to chat, some, like grab coffee and talk more about this Israel thing, I get it. It's, just a, lot. it's a lot. Time is limited. So let's look here. Verse 9, here's what Paul has been building to. It would be easy to think, after saying all of this, that he is done with Israel... And again, we're reading this as modern-day Christians. The, the Roman church would have read it in, in, in its initial reading. Might think maybe God is trying to get at this point across. Maybe he's done with anyone who doesn't believe. Here's what Paul says in verse 9. First, Paul tells the story of Abraham and Sarah. Remember, God chose Abraham and promised to bless the world through him. He, he gave Abraham and Sarah the birth of Isaac, which was a miracle all due to God's grace. He chose Abraham, right, apart from his worthiness, apart from his works. It was all grace. It was all God. God made promises to Abraham that were not conditional. God made a covenant with Abraham based on something inside of his own heart, God's own heart. And then to further press this line of thinking, Paul talks about the historical example of Isaac's twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Look what he says here. Let me just read this again for us at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. And, and here is Paul's big point in this passage. Don't miss this. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls? She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Here is where we begin to rub up against the higher ways of God we talked about earlier. When Paul says that before Jacob and Esau were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, I do need to say here that um, to say that, that, that God hated Esau does not mean that God hated Esau like you and I might sinfully hate someone. It's another way of saying this. God chose Jacob and not Esau. Again, remember, not because of anything good or bad in either of them, but due to his 
sovereign will. Because of him who calls. Now remember, we, we have to let the scriptures shape our view of God here. Not the other way around. When God says that one of the ways that his saving purposes are to be understood, and, it, and he says here in, in verse 11, through the idea of election, listen friends, he is giving us information about the nature of ultimate reality. It's not reality that you and I get to go, well, I kind of think that ultimate reality is something different. No, no, God is giving us information about ultimate reality. He is saying that when he elects, it is a free and sovereign purpose. It is not governed by anything outside of himself. The point is this, that, that God governs all things. And he does not base those things on anything in us, but in himself. Now, we, we just, I need to say something here. Tim's going to talk about this a little bit more um, next week. This theme will pop up a few more times in, uh, in our series. Um, and I will not be able to exhaust this this week. There is a paradox that exists, a tension that exists in the Bible between what we just said Sovereign choice, election by God, and human free will. And I just need to say tonight briefly to you that the teaching that we just heard from Paul in Romans 9 in no way contradicts the idea that you and I don't make meaningful choices in life. It does not in any way contradict the idea that that you and I will be held responsible for those choices. Maybe we can say it this way. If Jacob is saved, he is saved by faith. And if Esau is finally condemned, he will be condemned by his unbelief. To be finally saved, we must have believed. But God's unconditional election never contradicts the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith never contradicts the unconditional election that God um, uh, engages in as part of his purpose, his saving purposes in the world. So let me give you a term. This is what theologians call compatibilism, all right? Um, great book I want to recommend to you to, to get a sense of kind of our heartbeat about this topic at Mercy View. It's a book called Hand in Hand by uh, a great brother by the name of Randy Alcorn. You might know that name. Uh, Randy has written a lot of great books. He, he's written my favorite book on heaven called Heaven. Um, you should read that too. But, but Hand in Hand um, is really Randy's attempt to keep in tension what we're talking about here tonight. Humans choose freely, yet... Again, this is a mystery. Somehow God maintains sovereign governance over all things. Randy's point in his book, Paul's point here tonight, we're going to see this in the weeks to come, is that the Bible keeps those two things in tension. And somehow we must do the same. 
what's in here tonight. As we said at the top, sometimes the Bible creates questions, right? Um, you may be in that boat tonight. You're like, Brad, you've kind of messed with me tonight. I think I told you the story when we started this series. I had a, a dear friend uh, say, hey, I want to meet you. This was the summer before my freshman year of college. I want to meet at this Steak and Shake in St. Louis, and I, wanna, I need to tell you something. I need to talk to you. And what she wanted to talk about was Romans 9. And I had a mini crisis of faith walking away from that steak and shape because I, I had not really ever heard the kinds of things that you, you heard here tonight uh, in Romans 9. And it really, it just messed with me. So look, if you're here tonight and you're like, Brad, this is this like, um, maybe it's not even that you're like, this messes with me, but like you're kind of like angry. You're upset. Don't dismay, please. Remember the Christian walk that we're on together is a marathon, okay, not a, not a sprint. We don't have to figure this all out tonight. Let's take time to consider and to pray and to study, allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. But there are two things that we can say tonight without any hesitation. I believe there's absolute clarity uh, from Paul on in Romans 9. Here's the first one. Do you see the hope that is offered in Romans 9? When you and I consider not only the failure of Israel, but for that matter, the failure of humanity. Surely you would agree that Israel is not the only story of failure. The hope and the comfort here is that the promises of God can never be thwarted. They will come to pass. Why? Because the basis for God's mercy and grace is God. The guarantee that his promises will come to pass is the sovereign power of a merciful, grace-giving God. The word of God has not failed because there is some, something underneath the failure. God. Now, I, I do not know what kind of emotions the word election creates for you. But Paul's intent here tonight is not to bring doubt and confusion about God about your own spiritual walk. There are many tensions. And frankly, there's a lot of disagreements about how to interpret this. And, 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 and really, man, there are just like unanswerable questions. Um, but Paul's aim here isn't to just disrupt us and leave us there. His aim is to show us that the promise of God is indestructible. Now, he talks about election tonight and he doesn't talk about it uh, as, a, as a way to try to create this tension in us where um, we have to figure out whether we think God is being fair or not. Paul's point here is that election is actually a comfort that God will always work out his plan to save his people. And God's plan is good, it's perfect, and it's pleasing. We are actually supposed to find peace and solace and, and gladness in this truth. Friends, God is working out a plan for redemption, and today is a part of that plan. You actually may be here tonight. You've been investigating the things of Christ, and you, you're hearing something tonight that is strangely attractive. Or you, you sense in your heart you're being drawn towards the things of God. It very well may be that God is drawing you to himself today we could say it this way, you are being elected. 
Now listen, I don't fully understand how God determines the belief or unbelief of men and women without threatening their accountability. I can't answer that one for you when we get together for coffee. I'll give you some takes, but I, 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 I'm not going to resolve that for you. It is a deep, almost unpenetrable mystery. But something that we need to get settled here tonight is this. The truth of Romans 9 is meant to knock out from underneath our salvation, if you're a believer here, to knock out from underneath your salvation any ground of boasting that you have saved yourself. And this really leads me to the second thing that to me is undeniable tonight. We do not have to question this. The grace of God should continually reorient us. It is so shocking to read some of this stuff tonight. It's like me and Holly coming up on those signs on Interstate 29. It is unsettling. But it can change the direction of things. It does change the direction of things for good. Pastor and author John Piper says it this way. If this stretches your mind to the breaking point, better that your minds be broken than that the scriptures be broken. But listen to what he says. It's even better yet that we would let our mind and heart be enlarged rather than broken so that they can contain all that the scriptures teach. I wonder if that's what... Uh, might be the positive result of a, of a just wrestling with this passage tonight for some of us might be. It's not to shrink our, our thinking and to, to get into a, a, a pattern of, of, of doubt or, or skepticism about God, but rather to enlarge our thinking. Friends, this passage reoriented my life in the summer, I guess it would have been uh, 1994. And I, I think that this passage is supposed to reorient us all, to change our focus, our direction of things for the good. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 1, Paul grabs this theme and, 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 and says, look, there's actually even a greater purpose here. He says, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and here it is, to the praise of his glorious grace. Don't miss this. The end point of all of this that Paul is talking about here, the end point of, of everything in the scriptures is that you and I would be to the praise of his glorious grace. All election, all predestination, all calling, all redemption is according to that purpose. For the praise of the one who saves. This is the way that the grace of God is meant to reorient us to something better, something good. It's meant to point to more glory more renown, more worship for the God of our salvation. So friends, would you join me in these very challenging passages in the weeks to come to tune our hearts to that truth? Let's pray together.